All right, while they're heading out, if you would open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. We're reading our scripture here. It's Mark chapter 13, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 37. So we follow along as I read the word of the Lord, from starting from Mark chapter 13, verse 1, all the way through 37. And as he, as Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say what is ever given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand then. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not been seen from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands his doorkeepers to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. All right, we're in Mark 13 this week. We've been walking from the beginning of Mark that starts with the first verse, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and we come to this, the only monologue in the gospel of Mark, and a long one. It's full of apocalyptic pictures 
of stars falling and wars and um, what's the word uh, earthquakes and all sorts of famines you have promises of the son of man coming back um, you have a lot of discussion about when these things will happen this is a challenging passage to understand for that reason and it's a long one so for that reason I have an hour and a half long sermon today but I'm going to split it up this week the first half and next week the second half so that's why we read such a long passage and um, we're going to only get to the first point today and the second point and third point next week so all of this comes under I want to I want to see this as one whole speech though I don't want to take it in the smallest sections I want to take it as one big section and understand what Jesus was saying to his disciples I think we find in verse 13 the key to understand what they call the Olivet discourse um, and to give you a little bit of context this speech that Jesus gave probably did not happen in such a short time as it took Kent to read it Mark is writing from Peter's memory of all that Jesus said and condensed it down into this what took him maybe five minutes or less to read but they are on Tuesday of what we call the Holy Week. So Jesus enters into Jerusalem on Sunday, cleans the temple, all kinds of conflict with the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and religious leaders. They give up. Um, we, we talked about some of that conflict that was happening. He's left all day on Tuesday just teaching in the temple. David Michael spoke last week about one of the last things Jesus said in the temple in chapter 12 concerning the widow and the scathing rebuke he gave to the Pharisees. And then he leaves Jerusalem, headed to the town of Bethany. Now, it's important to remember that during this week, every morning he would come into Jerusalem, and every evening he would go back out to the town of Bethany where he would stay. And so he comes out of Jerusalem, leaves the temple, and he sits down with his disciples on this hill outside of Jerusalem called the, the Mount of, or the Hill of Olives. There were olive trees and fig trees on this hill, and you could see the temple and you could see the city of Jerusalem just on the next ridge. And there he gives them this talk about the destruction of the temple and what's to come. And what he's doing, I think we see in verse 13, is preparing them for events that are going to come that have great potential to shake their faith. And so he says in verse 13 this key phrase, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so our passage today and next week is going to be completely about this topic of endurance as disciples of Jesus. And in particular, those moments in our lives where endurance is hard. And so before, as a beginning, we're gonna start giving kind of an overview of what endurance is all about in the Bible, and then talk about three different, let's say, challenging times that you may face in your life that make it very difficult and a challenge to your faith. I'm gonna to explain to you that God tells us that those times are actually engineered by God for the strengthening of your faith, but they also are times where we need to be aware about the dangers of not following Jesus. Now, when I grew up in a church that looked a lot like this one, actually, with pews and high ceilings, um, we worked really hard to get people in the front door. We baptized, I remember once a year, our youth group, we wanted to see 52 teenagers come to Jesus, one for every week of the year. And we wanted to be 52 kids to be baptized. And at the end of the year, we reached it. And we were running kids through that baptism just like through a swimming pool. They were coming in and out. And it was like you're holding a bucket where you put a rock in and it falls out as soon as you put it in. And, and we had a lot of people come through the front door and a lot of people go out the back door. And we make a really big deal sometimes um, about getting in to Christ. But the reality is that Christ is much more interested with our endurance than he is with the number of people that come in and take that first step of baptism that we celebrated a few years ago. That's not to say that baptism isn't exciting and that when we see someone come to Christ, it's not exciting. But the main 
job of the church is to strengthen, and through the teaching of the word, the faith of believers for those times that they need endurance. And that's the, one of the works of the Holy Spirit in our lives as well. So my goal this Sunday and next Sunday, I think is what the goal of Jesus was in this passage. First of all, to lift your eyes toward a long-term enduring with Christ to the end. That's what he says, he who endures to the end. It's, it's as if in marriage, for example, um, you, you get married and you say, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, I think there's one more, until death do us part. You're saying, we are in this to endure to the end. And now how many people have you met there that started off well, the marriage didn't endure, that person, maybe one person in the marriage didn't endure in that commitment of love for the other, and that colors and taints completely everything that came before. Or every movie that starts where you think one guy's the good guy, and then halfway through, or usually somewhere about one-third of the way through, you realize that that person is not the good guy, in fact, and you don't stay in that one first third. The thing that's really left with you is the, the, how it ends. And so what I want for myself is that I endure to the end with Christ. It's what Christ wants for me. And that's what I want to see here in his word is what God's word says about that. And I want to help you individually and us as a church to think about how to persevere with Christ during those hardest times. You may not be facing those hardest times right now, but Christ's disciples were not either. So this happened, the speech that he gave them was on Tuesday. The things Jesus talks about in this discourse, he's looking forward to just a couple days from now when he's going to be arrested and when he's going to be crucified. But he's also looking forward to a couple years from then when the disciples themselves are going to be arrested and put on trial and brought before judges for his namesake. And then he looks beyond that, 30, 35 or 40-ish years from that moment where Jerusalem is going to be sacked by the Romans and the, the temple is going to be destroyed. But even further past that, he is talking for disciples even today because the end still was not at that moment. And he says that in his passage, but the end is not yet come. So you may not be going through one of those moments in your life, but I want us to think about how we individually and as a church can endure through some of these times. So I want to see also what Christ is doing in those times of persecution and disappointment and waiting, what he's doing in them to strengthen your faith. So, um, verse 13, enduring to the end, is what we're going to kind of hang all of this on. So, the church is God's chosen means to help you endure, along with his spirit, along with his word, and our preaching and our community and our service together is all meant for that purpose, that we might endure in Christ. So the first thing I want to see is just give a quick overview, because this passage doesn't say everything that's to be said about endurance. In fact, we don't have enough time for that. But what does God's word say about enduring in as disciples of Christ? Well, the reality is the New Testament especially has a lot to say. That word endurance is used over 130 times just in the Greek New Testament. So to understand all of the meanings of it would take us a whole long time. I'll give you a little bit of the Greek meaning of it. If you look on your screens, you can see that it's only important for you to understand that it's in two parts. Hupo um, meno is two different words. One of the, the first word, hupo, means over. And meno means um, to remain or to continue. So basically, um, your hupo could mean also under or by, so it's a preposition. So basically, you are, the, the meaning of this word is to continue under something. It's, a definition might be to remain in place instead of leaving, to endure bravely and trustfully, suggesting endurance under what would be very burdensome. A couple different languages for you. The word that we're speaking about in Arabic is the word sabr, or patience. 
This word is what the Arabic Bible translates this in this verse. So sabr, if you're learning Arabic, some of you are, you're taking classes and learning this, is a very important word in the Arabic language and in also the Muslim culture. This idea of what sabr or patience in difficulties that, that God gives you. So in religious setting, we're, we're going to talk about that. Let me, let me not get ahead of, ahead of myself. But that's, in Spanish, the word is perseverance. If you see, it says, mas el que persevere, that means he who perseveres. Um, I think we're all out of Spanish speakers here today, actually. Uh, I was hoping we'd have a couple, but we got, we got a few. So it's perseverance is the idea. So that's kind of the word, but what does the Bible say? I want to point to three preliminary thoughts about the idea of endurance as disciples of Christ before we look at this passage. I think it's really important that we kind of get an, a biblical understanding of endurance before we start. So first thing is endurance as disciples of Christ is essential to our salvation. If you look in verse 13, it says, he who endures to the end will be saved. So somewhere endurance is connected to our eternal salvation. Now, um, James 1.12 said, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So once again, the crown of life is just another way of saying eternal life, and it's connected to steadfastness or endurance, the same hupomeno, the same Greek word. Second Timothy 2.12 says, if we endure, he will reign, I'm sorry, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. So we even see this in the life of Jesus. In chapter 2 of John, many believed on him, thousands followed him. But by chapter 10 or chapter 9, I think it's actually as, as early as 6, the crowds went away and he was left with much fewer. And he didn't trust the first large crowd that followed him. Jesus himself told a parable about the four types of ground, and the first one did not receive the word, and the last one received the word and gave fruit, but there were two in the middle who started with Jesus, or they began to receive the word, started to grow, but did not endure. So endurance was a big theme of what Jesus talked about and what he experienced. We talked about the life of Jesus was in three parts. The first one was obscurity and how he was unknown, and then the second was popularity. Everybody praised and worshipped and, and enjoyed this miracle worker who fed them. And then the third part, though, was the persecution, when he was rejected by all men, abandoned by even his closest disciples, and went to the cross. So the earthly life of our Savior followed this pattern from obscurity to popularity to abandonment, where he went through those times and endured to the cross. So endurance as disciples of Christ is essential to our salvation, but this is very important to understand. Second thing is endurance is how we know true love. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So for example, how would you feel about a spouse that began to love you and then stopped. That's not what anybody has in mind when you begin the, the, the relationship. So that's why I tell people that are dating, never tell someone that you're, this is for the teenagers, okay? This is my advice to you. I think there's some Bible on it. Don't tell a girlfriend or a boyfriend that you love them until you're ready to commit the rest of your life to them. Because what does that tell us about love? If you say, I love you, but next week I'm not into you anymore. So we should say, I love you to that person that we are ready to commit in marriage for the rest of your life. So endurance is connected to love. So God wants and actually demands from us this enduring love. But here's the good news, is he gives us his enduring love before he asks us, and he equips us. And we're going to see more about that. 
That's to, this is a very important point. When I started to say endurance is connected to eternal life, that brings up really big questions. And this is where the third point is important. Endurance is a work of God in us, and it's something that we're commanded to. We're commanded toward endurance. So the New Testament teaches us that endurance as disciples of Christ is a work of God in us. It is his grace that we endure just as clearly as the reality that by his grace we were born again. That is to say that if I endure in Christ, I will not finish this life as a faithful believer in Jesus and say it's because I was really strong and it's because my faith was really, I think we say hard, right? Is that a correct word for that? My faith was really rocking. I did a great job at believing and I endured by the power of my, um, let's say my resolve to endure. Nobody's going to go into heaven with that sort of attitude to say, I am very proud of myself for having made it. We do not, the Bible does not teach that you are saved by grace, but then kept by an effort of your work. It teaches that endurance is a continuation of the grace of God that's given to you through the new birth. That it, I, I want to read a verse for you, John 17, 12. John, Jesus was praying for his disciples, and he says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, speaking of Judas. And then he says this, I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but that you, Father, keep them from the evil one. This tells me that endurance, me being kept to the end, is a work that God the Father does for me. It's his grace that he does for me. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I memorized this in the King James back when I was a kid, that he who began a good work is faithful to complete it. That is to say that he who began the work of the Spirit in me is, he, is the same strength and grace by which I must rely to stay in faith. Philippians 4.7, Paul continues to say, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So it is God who is guarding our minds, who's guarding our hearts, who is keeping us in faith, and it's by his grace that we endure. But it is also something that he calls us to participate in. And I'll give it to you like this. When I, when I was born again of the Spirit of God, it was because of his grace that he gave me faith. But at the same time, what does what did Peter say in the first Christian sermon in Acts chapter 2 when they said, what should we do? We have crucified Christ. What should we do? What did he tell them to do? He said, repent and believe the gospel. Well, who gives repentance? 2 Timothy 2.25 says that it's God who grants us repentance. That is to, so what does that leave us to understand? That it is all of grace that I am able to repent, but I am still commanded to participate in repenting when he says repent. So enduring then in Christ for the long haul in life is all of grace, but it's something we are called to participate in along with God. It may help you to understand it this way. Religion says that endurance is a test. And when I, when I mention the word sabr, that's the idea in Islam that, te- that patience or sabr is one of the tests that God gives you to see if you are worthy to go to paradise. So if you have sabr, if you have p- patience and endurance through difficult things in life, then you have passed the test and God will receive you and God will love you. But in Christ, that's not what endurance is like. In Christ, part of the, 
endurance is part of his formation of his disciples. So endurance is part of what he commits to do in you when he gave you new life. Okay, so it's like we have children, some of you may have children, and you want them to endure. You want them to be strong and you want them to grow physically. And so you take that commitment and responsibility on that you will feed them, but you also require them to eat. You take the commitment on that they will grow strong, but you also require that they run out and play and not just sit on the couch all day and play on their screens, I imagine. I think all the parents that I know have some expectation. And so as a parent, you love your child and you teach them endurance. That means that you take it as your responsibility, but you call on them to participate with you. Spiritually, God is our Father who gives us, who takes it on himself to keep us, and he has a whole plan for your life for how he's going to teach you to be strong and to endure. That means that you are participating with him. I would, we, we fall into two mistakes when we talk about lifelong endurance. On one side, we have a cliff that people are afraid that they won't endure and they'll lose their salvation. One uh, theological position believes that you can come into Christ and then by losing your faith, by stop believing, then you can fall out of Christ. And there's a fearfulness in that, a fearful striving to maintain faith. But on the other side, there's a foolish confidence, and this is the one I grew up with, this, and it's popularized in this phrase, once saved, always saved. And I don't know if you've ever heard that. That was popular to say back in the 80s and 90s when I grew up. But the idea was that you get in to Christ by a simple prayer. And all you have to do is make this one prayer and then you're good. You at one moment received it and there is no call upon your life to necessarily endure because you got it. And that's a sort of a foolish, misplaced or false confidence in the beginning that ignores the endurance. Now, I, what we have in the middle is gospel confidence, which is that we are confident completely that God keeps us and we are diligently striving with our Heavenly Father to endure. That's a gospel sort of confidence. And when he says, he who endures to the end will be saved, is as if he's saying everyone who endures to the end are those who God has birthed into his family and he has kept them. And if somebody did not endure to the end, in 1 John, um, John speaking to the church, he says there are many who not, are not with us anymore because they were not ever of us. Those are those first disciples who say, I believe in Jesus in John 2, but by John 6 have decided that the cost is too much and they're not interested anymore. So the endurance is part of the sign of who are his children. Another way to say this, that we use one phrase we use theologically is perseverance of the saints. That the saint who is born of the Spirit of God will persevere and will endure because of that reality of the new birth and the Spirit that indwells him. So in this passage, Mark 13, that was a long introduction to say that warnings and imperatives to disciples of Jesus are appropriate when we're talking about endurance. We don't just say, don't worry, need to worry about enduring through hard times because the reality is you're saved, so don't worry about it. Warnings about those hard times are appropriate and imperatives and commands that, it, that the Lord directs to us are appropriate. Now, in this passage, Mark 13, I think we get hung up a lot on the eschatological apocalyptic language, and we want to understand exactly when everything is happening, as if that's what Mark 13 is here for. So that we can, I, when I was a kid, uh, I remember this book that had, you, you folded it out, and it went about this long of charts showing all that the end times will be like. 
and it had what was happening in heaven, what was happening in earth, what was happening in hell, and which moments, and when the rapture would happen, when Jesus would come back, and what's going to happen during the seven years of tribulation, and then the millennium, and just all of this stuff. You could sit and just, an engineer created it from England, and engineers love that kind of thing, right? And it was just all the details of exactly what's going to happen. We're going to see in Mark 13, that's not the purpose at all for what Jesus was saying. In fact, he said, you're going to see this, and you're going to see that, but that's not the end. And he gives them 11 imperatives in this scripture, which is 11 direct commands to his disciples. And we're going to hang our thinking of this passage on three of those that get repeated. So out of the 11, three of them are repeated multiple times about how the Lord wants us to not be deceived. And our first point is that during times of disappointment, we tend to believe false saviors. That's what we're going to look at today. And secondly, during times of suffering, we tend to doubt God's sovereignty. And then thirdly, is during times of waiting, we tend to fall asleep. And we're going to look at the second two next week. Today, we're going to talk about that during times of disappointment, we tend to believe false saviors. Now, the reason Jesus told them don't believe these false Christs, these false saviors, was because he knows that we have a tendency when we're very disappointed by our life and how it's ended up, any part of it, that we tend to start getting anxious, we tend to start getting nervous, and we are susceptible to false saviors. So I'm going to start at the beginning, and this particular part we're going to see in two sections, verses 5 through 8, and also verses 14 through 23. So the beginning of this passage starts with the disciples wanting Jesus to wonder, not with an A, with an O, wonder at the huge rocks of this amazing temple. They wanted him to be just as impressed and centered on the temple as they were. Now, a few things about the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, it was, Jerusalem was not a city with a temple. It was a temple with a city. So the temple of Jerusalem took up about one-third of the space of Jerusalem. And you could see the temple from outside the high city walls. And the temple was central to not only the city of Jerusalem, but the whole nation of Israel. And the people came from all over Israel during the holidays, during the feast, to worship at the temple. And they were, these, these stones were made of 40 foot long, some 20 foot high stones, and they, it was mostly made and finished by Herod the Great. It was, many said, the greatest of the things that he built. He built seven cities in, in, Jerusalem, or in Galilee and in Judah, but the temple was the most magnificent of them. So the, not just the disciples, but also the disciples, they found their national and religious identity in the glory of the temple. They expected to reign with Christ from the temple. So they had in their mind that the life of discipleship following Jesus is going to lead us to this place where us 12 with him are reigning over this whole land from this place. They had good reason to think that in Isaiah chapter 2, and this is just one example, but the new, especially the prophets um, in the second half of the Old Testament is full of prophetic language about the temple. So I'll read with you Isaiah 2. Um, Isaiah wrote, The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. And all nations shall flow into it. And many people shall go and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." 
So the disciples had these sorts of prophecies in mind. Jesus came teaching. The nations came to hear him. They came for healing, and they listened to his teaching. And they thought, okay, next step, Jerusalem, temple, everybody comes. We're in charge with him, and that's what it's going to be like. And then Jesus throws this bomb into their plans here in verse 2 when he says, do you see these great buildings? They will not be left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, the disciples were shaken by this, and when they got alone with him, they said, four of them in particular, went to him and said, when will these things be? Now, I think they may have asked that because they wanted to make sure that it would be after they were dead, or maybe we're going to reign here for a long time and we don't have to worry about that. This was terrifying to them, what he said about the temple. So they said, when are these things going to be? And this was Jesus' response in verses 3 through 8, and then he picks up the conversation about the destruction of the temple again in verses 14 through 23. Next week, we're going to go back to verses 9 through 13. But in verse in verse uh, 5, he says, he says this, 5 through 8, he gives them details with a warning. These are the details that he says. He, sees, he says, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. So that's his warning. But what are the details of when this temple will be destroyed? He says in verse 7, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains, meaning the pains that you feel before the baby comes. So don't be confused, he said, by this destruction. It's not the end. And then he picks that up again in verse 14, and he says, but when you see the abomination of desolation, where he ought not be. Now, this is where it gets, we're going to go over this kind of fast. I would encourage you to read more if you're a history person especially, but I don't want to make this whole sermon about the history of it because it's all online and you can Google it and find out about all of it. But the temple, there was an abomination that happened in the temple, meaning the Romans came and desolation, they destroyed it. So the Jewish-Roman wars between 66 and 70 AD is what Jesus was referring to. This was going to happen in the lifetime of the disciples, but not for another 35 years. There, there was a Jewish, you could call a zealous group, zealots, who took over the, the uh, control of Israel from the Pharisees and the, the Herodians who had worked together with Rome, and they started to resist Rome. They actually defeated Romans' 12th legion in 66 AD, and they were very excited, but a lot of people knew this is going to end poorly. And so many people started to flee Jerusalem. Titus, the emperor at the time, sent all, a number of different legions at the same time, overwhelmed all of Israel, and absolutely destroyed it and Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. So what Jesus said was going to happen, Titus did. Every rock was removed, no, not one on top of another. That was actually Josephus writing about history said that this was the commands of Titus, that they should leave not one rock upon another in Jerusalem. So um, a quote from what Jesus said. And they did. They destroyed Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple. Now, what are the details of that? Jesus, I think, in a very practical way, wanted the disciples to know, and Mark, as he wrote this, that when that comes, you should flee. And look what he says here, let the reader understand. So when Mark writes this around 70 AD, he's writing very soon after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So he is telling something that all of the church has well known, but he's writing it down. So he's saying, let the reader understand, meaning you guys should connect what's happening right now to what Jesus had previously said. And then he says this, let then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is in the housetop not go down and not enter his house or take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his coat. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. 
For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. So, this destruction that happened because of the Romans was at a specific time and place. But it's connected, he says, in verse 20, he says, if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs, that word Christ is Messiahs, another word for it is false saviors, people who claim that they can save and they they know the way and they can save you, says false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you these things beforehand. So you see these imperatives, these commands, be on guard, don't believe false Christs. This is what Jesus is trying to tell his disciples. Now, what does this have to do with you and me? The, the, the disciples were no doubt very disappointed that their vision of what Jesus was going to do with them was not going to work out the way they planned, right? And the reality is that God was in their disappointment. Like, he had not just allowed it, but he had caused it to happen. So, they didn't necessarily understand this, but let's look at what happened as a result of the destruction of the temple. First of all, the word of God replaced the temple. So teaching about God no longer needs to happen in the temple because there is no temple anymore inside of the local church as God's word is being taught, people can learn about God all over the world. In fact, this is how uh, one of the reasons for the spread of Christianity was because of the destruction of Jerusalem and Israel, because it spread not only Christians, but also Jews all over the world, and the teaching about who God is would no longer be centralized in one place. Secondly, the gathering of the local church replaced the temple. That's the gathered community of God. doesn't need to happen every year in one place, but now happens all the time in the local congregations. You remember the first church where it met? In the temple. They came to the temple every day to worship and to worship the risen Christ. But when the temple was destroyed, now the gathered community happens wherever two or three are gathered together, which results in the indwelling Holy Spirit replaced the temple. That is, the presence of God is no longer in a building, but it's in everyone who believes. Now, you and I on this side of it can see that a world where Christ is indwelling in us is so much better than having a building in one city. But the disciples could only see what they expected Jesus to do. So, do you realize then that God is in the details of your deepest disappointments? Now, this is difficult because some of you have been through such deep disappointments of what you expected your life to be like and how you thought God would lead you as a Christian. You know, you thought it's going to be like this. You, you have this type of life and it follows this very ordinary plan. And then you, you die with all of your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren gathered around you and the, the spouse who's been faithful to you and, who is, and everybody's healthy. And then you just kind of painlessly go on to be with Jesus. Maybe that's the idea that we have of it, but the reality is that many of us have experienced such deep disappointment. And what I think Jesus is telling them is you have to be very careful in those times of deep disappointment because we are tempted to trust false saviors. So the first, though, key to not trusting false saviors is to realize that God is in your disappointments. Now, I, I think some of you have been through deeper disappointments than I have, for sure. If you ever talk to someone who's lost a child, um, and you haven't, and you go at that with just this flippant attitude, like, you know, God is doing something good for you, and it's no problem, and you'll be fine, you'll, you know, you can't go at it like that. And these guys, in losing their temple, this was such a devastating thought that their idea of their nation and their identity would be destroyed. But God was working in that 
for their good and for his glory. So if you've lost a friend or a loved one or a marriage or you've moved to a new place where you've experienced such emptiness or um, those things around you seem evil and you're trying to understand how could they be God's plan for me, um, I think the, the hardest thing, the, I'll give you an example. Uh, my wife came to Christ when she was 17. I don't think she would have come to Christ, now very humanly speaking. I don't know what God would have done because he does, he does all things well. But I don't think that she would have come to Christ if she had not experienced the devastation of her family through infidelity and, and divorce. It was that event in her teenage years that caused her to realize that life is, there's more to this life than this that has promised us happiness. As a child growing up, you find all of your happiness and stability in your family. And the fact that hers was destroyed and fell apart, but it was a family without God or Christ as the center, caused her to seek for God. Well, I think it was God seeking for her in the disappointment of the family unit. Um, the, I would say that the best thing that can happen to a pastor or a minister is that they experience great failure. I don't necessarily mean that I would wish moral failure or anything upon anybody ministering the gospel, but just that all of their dreams of ministry would, as the earliest possible moment, be disappointed. So that they can realize how much they need to rely on God's wisdom and strength and not their own. So our deepest disappointments are times where we should be very careful to not believe in false saviors. And here is the warning that he says um, in, verse 21, in verse 21, he says that they will say, look, there he is. They'll point to a savior. So I think there's two different types of false saviors in the world. First, there are those overt saviors, those who actually say they are a savior. You find those in false religions. We have those with buildings in different parts all over our city. Um, book of Mormon says it's another testament of Jesus Christ. Say, look, there is the Messiah in this book. Or in the Seventh-day Adventists with their prophet, Ellen G. White, there are very overt ways of people saying that they have a word from God and they can be your savior. But I think the ones that are more dangerous for us are those covert messiahs or those things that promise you happiness. So you might say these are like false idols. You're a career that promises to make you happy, a person that promises to make you happy, a substance when you get really disappointed that promises to take away the pain and make you happy. These are false saviors. So. What are or who are the most tempting false saviors for you? If you lost your spouse, if you lost your, a child, or you lost a job, or you lost community, or some of these things that are extremely disappointing. As an application, we as a local community, as a church, have as our main emphasis the lifting up of Christ so that during the difficult times, we can see Christ clearly. That is to say that there's a few ways I thought, how does our church equip people for these moments? First of all, in our preaching and in our worship, it should be Christ-centered. That means that as we teach God's word, even to our children and here, it should be all about centered on Jesus Christ so that we know him. Um, secondly, in deep relationships inside of our church, deep relationships with Christ, that, with Christ-filled brothers and sisters, um, gospel communities where we meet on Thursdays. If you're not a part of one, we want to encourage you and invite you to be part of that. Um, and in different ways that we meet through friendships in this community are vital to pointing each other toward Jesus during those times of deep disappointment. I've also been so blessed and encouraged by all the Bible studies that are spontaneously going on among our members throughout the week. That the college guys or the middle school girls that Russia is leading or the uh, high school girls that had a Bible study yesterday at the Great Commoner or one-on-one um, -on -one Bible studies um, that are happening, BSF with the women on Friday, 
All of these are meant to lift up the real Christ in our hearts so that during times of deep, deep disappointment, we will not be confused or, let's say, drawn away by other false saviors. So here's a few things to encourage you. What you can do, keep getting under each other, supporting one another to endure. Open up deep relationships to one another. Church is not supposed to be a meeting on Sunday that we come in and then we leave. It is a life together. So continue coming and be a part of the community that points each other toward Christ. And pray for this community. Pray for each other. Um, Pray for me as I teach the word and others of you who are up teaching the word and leading Bible studies throughout the week. Um, We're going to sing a song to conclude the service and to remember the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And um, I want to conclude every time with this, the cross as our center. We have a cross back here because we can't talk about endurance without talking about him who endured such contradiction of sinners to the cross for you and me. Because if it were up to you and me and my strength, none of us would endure, right? And so we hold on to Christ, but in reality, he is holding on to us by his grace. And uh, so this week we're talking about these deep disappointments. I want to encourage you to go back and read through Mark 13 and look at the imperatives that Jesus said about not believing false saviors and think deeply, who are some of the false saviors I've believed in the past who promised me happiness? And what are the ones that are dangerous for me right now as I'm going through a disappointment in my life. Those false things that promise to give me uh, happiness. And then as we sing and as we take the Lord's Supper, replace any temptation of that false savior with the only one true mediator and savior, Jesus Christ, who endured for you to the cross and through the cross to resurrection that we might enjoy that resurrection life with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can endure because of the power of your spirit. Um, Lord, we have an idea of what we want our lives to be like. And if we've lived very long, we've been disappointed. But Lord, you have a plan for each one. And it is that plan that is going to disappoint our idols, in us in our idols, and point us towards Jesus if we will listen to you. So I pray, Lord, for everybody listening, that they would look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. We worship you, Lord, because you are a risen Savior who pulls us through all this disappointment, through death and to the other side. In Jesus' name, amen.